If you haven't heard already, um, we're talking about the seventh commandment today, which is you shall not commit adultery. Uh, So we'll be talking about sex, marriage, adultery, and all that surrounds that. Um, I recognize it's a sensitive topic, and it impacts all of us in in a variety of ways, Um, but God has a lot to say about it, and we really really need his wisdom. Uh, If you're a parent, or a grandparent, or whatever, you have kids in your life, I just encourage you, please take this opportunity to talk to your kids. Um, this is really important. It is your job, primarily before it's mine, to talk to your kids about uh, sex and marriage and all that comes with that. So let's read uh, Exodus chapter 20. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 14. Uh, we'll, really, we'll be focusing on verse 14, uh, but as we've... Uh, made our habit, we'll just read all of the commandments up until the one we're on. So let's look at the first seven commandments. This is God's word, which was written by the finger of God on stone. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock. Or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder You shall not commit adultery. Let me pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, thank you for your word, Lord. We need your help. Lord, I ask that you would um, give me wisdom, give me words to speak that are true and in line with your word, your revealed will in Scripture. And I pray that you'd give us all soft hearts, Lord, that you might uh, mold us. Uh, We are the clay in your hands. Would you mold us more and more after your image? And Lord, I especially pray that we would feel your love and grace as we talk about this, the seventh commandment. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I probably don't have to convince you that our culture has lost its mind about sex. Um, 
It has. It has lost its mind. The, the only thing I might have to convince you is that we are part of that culture. And we also have all kinds of, of blind spots, uh, wrong assumptions. Uh, on the one hand, our culture says sex is nothing. It's not a big deal. It's like exercise. It's like eating. You just do it with whoever you want, whenever you want. Sex is nothing. It's totally casual. It's no big deal. On the other hand, sex is everything. My identity, who I am, is fundamentally tied to who I'm attracted to. It's the most important fact about me. Sex is everything. So our culture tells us it's nothing and it's everything. It's no big deal and it's the most important thing in my life. It's confused. Our culture is deeply confused. And we, this is the water that we swim in. We also, whether we, whether we realize it or not, have been um, infiltrated by this idea. We're products of our culture. And we're not just confused. If all it was was a problem of our mind, that would be much simpler. I could just communicate information. God could just tell us, here's the problem. Here's the solution. Easy. But it's not. It's much bigger than that. It's a problem of our heart. Our hearts are skewed and broken. The fabric of our relationship seems to be tearing at at its seams. The fabric of our society, the relationships are broken and fractured. And a lot of it comes back to this, a, a misunderstanding, a wrong understanding about marriage and sex. Thankfully, we have God's word. And God invented marriage and he invented sex. So he has a lot to say about it, about its design, about what went wrong, and about how Christ has redeemed it. So as we look at our passage today, we're going to answer this question. You'll see an outline there in your bulletin. I think it's on page 7. As we look at the seventh commandment, really what we're looking at is what does the Bible say about marriage and adultery and sex? We're not just focusing on that one passage. Um, we're going to be, but we're going to be answering this question. How has Christ freed us to experience real intimacy? How has Christ freed us to experience real intimacy? I um, also want to just, as an aside, say, if you're married, please do not listen to this sermon for your spouse. Um, I know that's a temptation. No, you don't need to elbow your spouse. Um, we were at Weekend to Remember, which is a marriage retreat last week, and the guy said, draw a circle around yourself. So just do that. Draw a circle around yourself if you're married and say, this is for me to hear. This isn't for my spouse. I need to hear this. So let's look first about how Christ teaches us the purpose and power of sex. So here we have our passage. I memorized our whole passage today. You shall not commit adultery. Uh, It's just five words in English, and it's two words in Hebrew, two punchy words. And with these two words, God is saying emphatically, do not have sex outside of the bond of a lifelong marriage commitment. Is this because God does not like sex? He thinks it's dirty or wrong, or he thinks it's bad? No, it's, it's just the opposite. God designed sex, and so he understands the purpose and the power. He knows that it's powerful, and he knows that when it's 
used wrongly, it has enormous impact, like almost like nothing else. So I want to go through four purposes of the marital union, a.k.a. sex. <clears throat> Number one, procreation. So remember, God makes Eve out of Adam, and the very first thing he tells them, the very first marriage counseling session in the history of humanity, and this is what God says, Genesis one twenty eight, and God blessed them, Adam and Eve, and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So here's God, he's the counselor, he sits down this couple and he says, listen, here's my marriage advice, have lots of babies, have lots of sex and make lots of babies fill the earth. God's first ever marriage advice. That's um, the first uh, purpose of sex. The second purpose is physical pleasure. You may not realize this, but there's a whole book of the Bible that's dedicated to sex. The Song of Solomon is, is dedicated to marriage and the marital union. Listen to this. This is from Song, Song of Solomon 4, uh, cha- uh, ver- chapter 4, verse 10 and 11. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice. Your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. If you're married, I'd encourage you to actually read Song of Solomon with your spouse. It's awesome. An awesome book. It's very poetic and kind of confusing sometimes, but good. The, point, the reason I wanted to read that, though, is to, to point out to you that God designed sex, and he made it on purpose to feel good. That's not an accident. That was, he did that. So when a husband and wife come together, it is pleasing to God. It brings glory to God. The fact that it feels good shows that God is a good designer. That's two. Number three, the marital union is meant to teach us about who God is. In John chapter 17, Jesus prays to the Father, and this is what he says. Uh, Jesus, the the Son of God, prays to God, um, God the Father. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. So the marital union is meant to teach us something about who God is. He is Uh, united, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are united intimately. And it's a reflection of God's love. That's the third purpose. The fourth purpose, which is the one I want to focus on uh, for the most, is to create marital oneness. God has given us sex to create and foster marital oneness. Remember what God says in Genesis 2.24. He says, A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Sex is designed to unite two souls. So there's but one heart in two bodies. One heart and two bodies. Um, Sex says with your body what your marriage vows say with your words. 
It says, I am yours, mind, body, and soul, until the day I die. Actually, the, the word for sex uh, in Hebrew reflects this. It, you may read, when you're reading your Old, Old Testament, it says, And Adam knew his wife Eve, and they conceived and bore a child. This word to know, this intimate knowing, this oneness, this is how we should understand the marital union. Uh, to say it another way, it is like super, super glue for the soul. It is designed to bring two souls together. And it's, okay, where we go wrong and where our culture has led us astray is that we see it as a physical act. We see it as a merely physical act. But it is much more than that. It is very spiritual. This is why God says the two will become one flesh. So how does this apply? Well, first let me speak um, to the husbands. And I guess men in general, but uh, anyone who will be married someday. Sexual intimacy is bound to all forms of intimacy. To try to separate the physical act from all the the other things that go into marriage. Uh, To try to only connect with your wife physically when you're not connecting with her emotionally, spiritually. um, Talking about work, talking about relationships, if, if all you do, if, all you, if you're not caring for your wife in those other areas, then you won't be one in the physical area either. How else does this apply? Well, it means that there's, there's many ways to cheat on your spouse. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that if you've looked at a woman lustfully in your heart, then you have committed adultery. <clears throat> But there's, there's many ways, when we understand that uh, marriage is about this oneness, this intimate oneness, that means to give your job, your kids, your entertainment, um, to give anything else in your life priority over your spouse's, um, the relationship with your spouse is a form of adultery. It is uh, tearing apart that marital bond. Finally, one last application for this is, as we think about these four, uh, these four purposes of sex, sex is abused and becomes destructive when we, ta- when we try to take the pleasure of sex without, and we try to leave all the other purposes. We just say, all I want is the pleasure. We selfishly take that. And that leads to all kinds of destructive things. Um, that's what pornography is about. That's what fornication is about, homosexual, homosexuality. All these forms of sexual sins are selfishly trying to take pleasure without uh, deepening the marital union. <clears throat> A really helpful way to think about this um, is that sex is like fire. So we were just at Weekend to Remember, a marriage conference, and the pastor there said, really helpfully, he, he told a story. He said, um, he, he knew a man who, he had a friend who built a house from scratch, and not like he hired someone to build a house, like he actually nailed every board and laid every brick and wired every outlet. And so he finally finished building this house, took him years to do it, and he went out of town, and he left his friend, and he said, hey, can you, can you watch the house for me? And his friend had a fire going in the chimney, 
You know, the house had a beautiful chimney, and he had a fire going in the chimney, and a log rolled out of the fireplace, caught the carpet on fire, and just burned the whole house to the ground. See, fire, it cooks our food, it warms our home, it propels our vehicles, it brings life, warmth, joy, but it also has great potential for destruction. When it gets out of the fireplace, it can burn down our homes, it'll burn down our forests. It's been weaponized and used to kill. It is incredibly powerful for both good and for evil. Sex is like this. When used properly, it is, there is perhaps no better blessing from God. But when we use it, when we misuse it, it is powerful, destructive force. I looked up some statistics uh, on pornography use in the church uh, through Covenant Eyes. Covenant Eyes says that 64% of Christian men and 15% of Christian women say they watch porn at least once a month. If you are currently caught in sexual, in a cycle of sexual addiction, sexual sin, pornography, lustful thoughts, an affair, an emotional affair, it's not even physical. Remember that that marital oneness is not just about physical, it's about emotional, relational, spiritual connection. God is pleading with you. When he says, do not commit adultery, he is saying, you are playing with fire. You are playing with fire. It will burn down your house. It will destroy your marriage, your family. It will will shatter your children's future relationships, that generational sin. We think to ourselves, look, I have this under control. It's just a little fire. We coddle our little fires. It won't do much damage. I can handle this on my own. God is saying, do not commit adultery. You're playing with fire. <clears throat> okay, having, having laid out this God's original design for marriage, um, this is a pretty big burden that I've just heaped on your shoulders, and I recognize that. <clears throat> But I want to I move now and see at how Christ has freed us to experience real intimacy. And that brings us to point two. First, he teaches us what it's really for. But we've messed up, haven't we? What I just described, what God's original intent in his design does not match our experience. It does not match our world. To say it another way, the fire got out of the chimney a long time ago. And our world is on fire. It's, it is really, really on fire. And no one has been untouched. Each of us have been burned. Some of us have been burned more than others. We all have a sexual history. Even if it's only happened on the internet or between our ears. Some of you have been used by others for their own selfish pleasure. And some of us have used others for our own selfish pleasure. 
leaving a, a wake of victims, a wake of damage in our path, just like a wildfire. And God has been there to witness it all. So the question is, okay, we feel that. You guys feel that weight? I can tell you feel that weight. I feel that weight. I think you do too. How is Jesus going to respond? What does Jesus do? We need help. We need help, don't we? I want to just talk briefly about John chapter 4 and the woman at the well. If you remember the story of uh, the woman at the well, Jesus is traveling through Samaria and he stops to get water in the heat of the day. And he meets there a woman, a Samaritan woman. And this is a woman who has lived a life of sexual promiscuity. She has been used by men to meet their own desires and she has used men to meet her own desires. So she comes to the well in the middle of the day when no one else is there because she is ashamed. She carries around with her this weight of social shame. She doesn't want to see anyone else. She comes to the well in the middle of the day. And who does she meet there? She meets Jesus. And despite all kinds of cultural taboos telling her, telling Jesus, you should not talk to this woman, Jesus engages with her. He talks to her. He says to her, <clears throat> this, is, this is embarrassing and would have been hard to hear. He says, you have had five husbands, and the man you are now with now is not your husband. And this woman, she immediately changes the subject. She says, this is what she says in John chapter 4. Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. And then she, she lobs a hot-button theological issue. Hey, what do you think about this hot-button theological issue? Complete smokescreen. She's hiding in her guilt and shame. She's doing everything to cover the facts of her sexual sin. This is just like Adam and Eve in the garden, right? They, they sin and they go and they hide from God. They try to cover their shame with fig leaves. Why do we do this? Why do we hide? Why do we cover? <clears throat> well, we think God, if he were to see what we've done, he, he couldn't handle it. He would condemn us. If he knew, he wouldn't forgive us. He wouldn't be able to handle the depth of our evil. And so, as we see our brokenness and our sickness, we hide from the only one who can help us, just like this woman at the well. She tries to skirt around Jesus' question. So, the question again is, what does God do? How does Christ respond to us in our sexual brokenness? Well, first, remember in the garden, he moves towards Adam and Eve. He says, where are you? Where are you? And Jesus, speaking to this woman at the well, he pushes through her smoke screen to offer her healing and living water. He's not scared of her past. He, he's, he knows it. Jesus, in the Gospel of Matthew, says, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, 
not sacrifice. For I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. How does Jesus respond to our sin being exposed? Like a good doctor, like a good doctor, He moves towards us with healing and mercy. What does this mean for us? Well, one, it means Jesus has seen all of our sexual sins. He has seen our brokenness, and he has not pulled back. We expect him to turn his face. We expect him to wince and go, oh. But he's not scared of the dirt. He moves towards us with forgiveness and compassion. It means you're not alone. There's no temptation that is not common to mankind. Whatever you struggle with, you are not alone. You're not alone, one, because many other people struggle with it, and two, because Jesus is with us in our struggle. So please, do not hide your sexual sins anymore. Bring it to Jesus and to a trusted Christian friend. You can, you can experience real freedom. I have seen it. I've seen it in my own life. I've seen it in the lives of my friends and family. You can experience real freedom from this sin. There is no sin that is bigger or stronger than our Lord. Christ empowers us to be free. This brings us to point three. Again, we're answering this question, how has Christ freed us to experience real intimacy? This is really important. Christ's love empowers real intimacy. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, God says this. He says, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. All right, so in this passage, God uses this metaphor um, to describe his people. That's us. And he describes us as what we are is basically we're super thirsty. We're very thirsty creatures. We're always, we always need water being poured into us. We need a constant supply of water. We have to be hooked up to like an IV, just an IV drip, constantly going. And as long as we stay by the fountain that is God's endless supply of water, God's endless supply of love, we're fine. That's, we, we all have this desire for love, for relational, relational intimacy. We have a desire for relational intimacy. And this is a good desire. It's a God-given desire. God made us to be thirsty. He made us to be thirsty for love, for intimacy, for connection with other humans. He doesn't want us to pretend like we don't have that desire. <clears throat> But there's a problem. There's only, one, there's only one source of love that can keep us satisfied. There's only one fountain 
that can fill us up. But God says in this passage, he says, you have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and you've hewed out cisterns for yourselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So instead of going to God, we go to the, we try to make our own little jars of clay that can hold a little bit of dirty water, but they leak and they don't really work. They're incapable of meeting our needs. So as I lay out this picture of marriage, you may find yourself thinking, okay, I'm not experiencing marriage that way. Marriage is hard. Intimacy is hard. Why? Why is it so hard? It's hard because we are thirsty for God, for the love that only God can give, and we look to our spouses to quench our thirst. But but they, our spouses cannot satisfy that thirst. So we're like two ticks trying to suck blood from each other. Neither can give what the other one needs. Your spouse cannot give you all the love that you need. And so what happens? These two ticks try to suck blood from each other. They both wither up and die. It's because God designed us to drink from somewhere else. He is the fountain of living water. What this means is that whether you're married, single, divorced, widowed, there is no amount of human intimacy that can satisfy your desire. It is not wrong to desire those things. You are made for that connection. Absolutely, yes. But there is no relationship No amount of sex, no amount of pornography, no amount of intimacy that will end your thirst. You need a fountain of living water. The water that flows out of God's fountain is love. I struggle, it's, it's impossible perhaps to communicate how much God Loves you. I'm going to try. God is an infinite fountain of love. When the Bible talks about God, about love, it says God is love. In Christ, because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, when God looks at us, he sees a spotless child, perfect. He loves us. He doesn't just love us. He doesn't just love you. He likes you. He likes the way that you look. He likes you. He doesn't just love you. He likes you. Has your husband ever written a love song for you? Wives, has your husband ever written a love song? Probably not. Maybe a poem. If they're really, they go above and beyond. Zephaniah chapter 3 verse 17 It says this, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. He will exalt over you with loud singing. One way to understand God's love for you is that he has written, he has composed, and he has performed a love song. For you. 
because he loves you. Your spouse may ignore you. Your spouse may treat you poorly. They, I'll just tell you, they will be selfish. They are selfish. And they might be mean. But God is not like that. God likes you. And He loves you. In Christ, He wants you. He is desirous over you. He's singing over you. And He needs nothing from you. Your spouse has all kinds of needs and wants and desires. God does not need anything from you. He just wants you. He wants to be with you. And His love is relentless. It's not like any man's love. It's it's not selfish. Our love is always tainted by selfishness, is it not? God's love is selfless. Jonathan Edwards, if you, if you want to understand God's love, I highly recommend a book by Jonathan Edwards. It's called Heaven, A World of Love. And in it, he talks about how heaven is a world of love. And he just imagines what it would be like to live where you felt the love of God every second of every day And that love overflowed out of your heart into everyone else around you. But this is what Jonathan Edwards says. He says, There is such love and such grace in the heart of God that if you understood, if you understood, if we could understand the length and breadth and height and depth of it, you would never be discouraged. And I'll just add to that, if we could understand God's love, We would never desire to sin sexually. C.S. Lewis has famously said about this, he said, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. How does God redeem marriage and sex and our sexual sin? It is only when we are filled with Christ's love, with the fountain, the fountain that never ends, this fountain of love, that we will be able to give ourselves to our spouses and demand nothing in return. As long as you're trying to get and take and demand from your spouse, you will suck each other dry. It's only when we know God's love for us that we can give love to others. I want to end with what Jesus says to the woman at the well. If if you know that story, you're familiar with this. He says, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. 
The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. Amen. Let me pray. Lord, this is a, a huge and heavy subject. Uh, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would apply your healing power, your love. Lord, we need your love. We're hungry for relationships. We're hungry for intimacy. We're hungry for love. And you are the only one who can supply that. So Lord, we ask that you would Would you heal us with your love through Christ? I pray all this in his name. Amen.